Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. This is the Sunday morning session of the 188th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the first presidency of the church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday morning session of the 188th Semiannual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings and blessings to those of you who are participating in these proceedings throughout the world, by radio, television, the internet, or satellite transmission. We acknowledge the general authorities and the general officers who are in attendance this morning. The music for this session will be provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg with Richard Elliott and Andrew Unsworth at the organ. The choir opened this meeting with Rejoice, the Lord is King, and will now favor us with Redeemer of Israel. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Alan F. Packer, who received emeritus status yesterday afternoon. The choir will then sing Choose the Right.
our Heavenly Father. We are grateful to be gathered together this morning in this Sunday morning session of General Conference. We acknowledge thy blessings and the guidance that we have received. We come to worship thee, thy Son, to learn to be uplifted, motivated, and inspired, and most of all, to learn how we might move thy work forward. We're grateful for all who are involved in preparing for speaking to and blessing the lives of the members of the Church through this conference. We pray that thy Spirit might be here in abundance, that each of the speakers may be able to express that which has been prepared, and that we as members of the Church throughout the world will be able to hear, remember, understand, and apply those principles in our lives. We ask thy blessings upon President Nelson, his counselor, the Quorum of the Twelve, and all the leaders throughout the world. We ask thy blessings to be with those who suffer from the natural disasters which have occurred. We ask thee to bless and strengthen those who are pained through physical, emotional, or other events that have occurred in their lives. We express our love and gratitude to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. 
will now be pleased to hear from President M. Russell Ballard, who serves as acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Sister Bonnie H. Corden, who serves as Young Women General President. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles will then address us. My brothers and sisters, my talk was prepared some time before the passing of my dear wife, Barbara. My family and I thank you for your love and your outreach and kindness. I pray the Lord will bless me as I speak to you this morning. In October 1918, 100 years ago, President Joseph F. Smith received the glorious vision. After almost 65 years of dedicated service to the Lord in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and just a few weeks before his death on November 19, 1918, he sat in his room pondering Christ's atoning sacrifice and reading the Apostle Peter's description of the Savior's ministry in the spirit world after his crucifixion. He recorded, As I read, I was greatly impressed. As I pondered over these things, the eyes of my understanding were opened, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I saw the hosts of the dead. The full text of the vision is recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, section 138. Let me provide some background so that we may more fully appreciate Joseph F.'s lifetime of preparation to receive this remarkable revelation. When he was president of the church, he visited Nauvoo in 1906 and reflected on a memory he had when he was just five years old. He said, This is the exact spot where I stood when Joseph, my uncle, and my father, Hiram, came riding up on their way to Carthage. Without getting off his horse, father leaned over in, in, from his saddle and picked me up off the ground. He kissed me goodbye and put me down again, and I saw him right away. The next time Joseph S. saw them, his mother, Mary Fielding, lifted him up to see the martyrs lying side by side, being brutally murdered in Carthage Jail on June 27, 1844. Two years later, Joseph F., along with his family and faithful mother, Mary Fielding Smith, left his home in Nauvoo for winter quarters. Although not yet eight years old, Joseph F. was required to drive one of the ox teams from Montrose, Iowa, to winter quarters, and then later on to the Salt Lake Valley, arriving when he was almost 10. I hope you boys and young men are listening and will realize the responsibility and expectation placed on Joseph F. during his boyhood. Just four years later, in 1852, 
When he was 13, his beloved mother died, leaving Joseph and his siblings orphans. Joseph F. was called to serve a mission in the Hawaiian Islands in 1854 when he was 15 years old. This mission, which lasted more than three years, was the beginning of a life of service in the Church. Upon his return to Utah, Joseph F. married in 1859. For the next few years, his life was filled with work, family duties, two additional missions, and on July 1, 1866, at the age of 27, Joseph F.'s life was forever changed when he was ordained an apostle by Brigham Young. In October the following year, he filled a vacancy in the Council of the Twelve. John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and Lorenzo Snow before becoming president himself in 1901. Joseph F. and his wife, Jelina, welcomed their first child, Mercy Josephine, into the family. She was only two and a half years old when she passed away. Shortly after, Joseph F. recorded, It is one month yesterday since my darling Josephine died. Oh, that I could have saved her to grow to womanhood. I miss her every day, and I'm lonely. God forgive my weakness if it is wrong to love my little ones as I love them. During his lifetime, President Smith lost his father, his mother, one brother, two sisters, two wives, and 13 children. He was well acquainted with sorrow and losing loved ones. When his son, Albert Jesse, died, Joseph F. wrote to his sister, Martha Ann, that he had pled with the Lord to save him and asked, Why is it so? Oh God, why had it to be? Despite his prayers at the time, Joseph F. received no answer on this matter. He told Martha Ann that the heavens seemed like brass over our heads on the subject of death and the spirit world. Nevertheless, his faith in the Lord's eternal promises were firm and steadfast. In the Lord's due time, the additional answers, comfort, and understanding about the spirit world he sought came to Joseph, to President Smith, through a marvelous vision he received in October 1918. That year was particularly painful for him. He grieved over the death toll of the Great World War that continued to climb over the up over 20 million people that were killed. Additionally, a flu pandemic was spreading around the world, taking the lives of many as, as many as 100 million people. During this year, President Smith also lost three more precious family members, Elder Hiram Max Smith of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, his firstborn son, and my grandfather died suddenly of the ruptured appendix. President Smith wrote, I'm speechless, numb with grief, 
My heart is broken and flutters for life. Oh, I loved him. I will love him forevermore. And so it is and ever will be with all my sons and daughters. But he is my firstborn son, the first to bring me the joy and hope of an endless honorable name among men. From the depths of my soul, I thank God for him. But oh, I needed him. We all needed him. He was most useful to the church. And now, oh, what can I do? Oh, God, help me. The next month, President Smith's son-in-law, Alonzo Kessler, died in a tragic accident. President Smith noted in his journal, This most terrible and heart-rendering fatal accident has again cast a pall of gloom over all of my family. Seven months later, in September 1918, President Smith's daughter-in-law and my grandmother, Ida Bowman Smith, died after giving birth to her fifth child, my Uncle Hiram. And so it was on October 3rd, 1918, having experienced intense sorrow over the millions who had died in the world through war and disease, as well as the deaths of his own family members, President Smith received the heavenly revelation known as the vision of the redemption of the dead. He alluded to the revelation the following day in the opening session of General Conference. President Smith's health health was failing, yet he spoke briefly. He said, I will not, I dare not, attempt to enter upon the many things that are resting upon my mind this morning. And I shall postpone until some future time, the Lord be willing, my attempt to tell you some of the things that are in my mind and that dwell in my heart. I have not lived alone these last five months. I have dwelt in the spirit of prayer, of supplication, of faith, and of determination, and I have had my communication and of determination, and I have had my communication with the Spirit of the Lord continuously. The revelation he received on October 3rd comforted his heart and we too can be comforted and learn more about our own future when we and our loved ones die and go to the spirit world by studying this revelation and pondering its significance in the way we live our lives each day. Among the many things President Smith saw was the Savior's visit to the faithful in the spirit world after his own death on the cross. From the vision, I quote, But behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men and women. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. These were taught faith in God 
repentance from sin, vicarious baptisms and remission for sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, and all other principles of the principios del evangelio que les era menester conocer In order to that they según los hombres and gave them power to come forth after his resurrection from the dead to enter into his father's kingdom there to be crowned with immortality and eternal life and continue thenceforth their labor as had been promised by the Lord and be partakers of all blessings which were held in reserve for them that love him. Close quote. In the vision, President Smith saw his father, Hiram, and the prophet Joseph Smith. It had been 74 years since he had last seen them as a small boy in Nauvoo. We can only imagine his joy at seeing his beloved father and uncle. He must have been inspired and comforted to know that all spirits retain the likeness of their mortal body and that they are anxiously awaiting the day of their promised resurrection. The vision revealed more fully the depth and breadth of Heavenly Father's plan for his children and Christ's redeeming love and matchless power of his atonement. On this special 100th anniversary, I invite you to thoroughly read and thoughtfully read the Revelation. As you do so, may the Lord bless you to come more fully understand and appreciate God's love, his plan of salvation and happiness for his children. I testify that the vision President Joseph S. Smith received is true. I bear witness that every person can read it and come to know it is true. Those who do not receive this knowledge in this life will surely come to know it is of its truthfulness when they and everyone will arrive in the spirit world. There, all will love and praise God and the Lord Jesus Christ for the great plan of salvation, the blessing of the promised resurrection, when body and spirit will once again be united, never to be separated again. How grateful I am today, my brothers and sisters, to know where my precious Barbara is. And that we will be together again with our family for all eternity. May the peace of the Lord sustain all of us now and forever is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
President Ballard, we love you and we are praying for your dear family. A year ago, a primary child I met in Chile brought a smile to my face. Hello, he said. I'm David. Will you talk about me in general conference? moments, however, I have pondered David's unexpected greeting. We all want to be recognized. We want to matter, to be remembered, and to feel loved. Sisters and brothers, each of you matter, even if you're not spoken of in general conference. The Savior knows you and loves you. If you wonder if that is true, you need only contemplate that he has graven you upon the palms of his hands. Knowing that the Savior loves us, we might then wonder how can we best show our love for him. The Savior asked Peter, Lovest thou me? Peter answered, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. When asked this question both the second and third time, Lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, yet confirmed his love. Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Hadn't Peter already proven himself a loving follower of Christ? From their first encounter on the seashore, he straightway left his fishing nets to follow the Savior. Peter became a true fisher of men. He accompanied the Savior during his personal ministry and helped teach to others the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now the resurrected Lord knew he would no longer be by Peter's side, showing him how and when he should serve. In the Savior's absence, Peter would need to seek guidance from the Spirit, receive revelation on his own, and then have the courage and faith to act. Focused on his sheep, the Savior desired Peter to do what he would do if he was there. He asked Peter to become a shepherd. Last April, President Russell M. Nelson extended a similar invitation to us to feed our father's sheep in a holier way and to do so through ministering. To effectively accept this invitation, we must develop a shepherd's heart and understand the needs of the Lord's sheep. So how do we become the shepherds the Lord needs us to become? As with all questions, we can look to our Savior Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. The Savior's sheep were known and numbered. They were watched over and they were gathered into the fold of God. As we strive to follow the Savior's example, we must first know and number his sheep. We have been assigned specific individuals and families to tend. So we are certain that all the Lord's flocks are accounted for. And no one, no one is forgotten. Numbering, however, is not really about numbers. It's about making certain each person feels the love of the Savior through someone who serves for him. In that way, all can recognize they are known by a loving Father in heaven. I recently met a young woman who has been assigned to a minister to a sister almost five times her age. Together they have discovered a common love for music. When this young woman visits, they sing songs together and they share their favorites. 
They are forging a friendship that blesses both of their lives. I hope those to whom you minister will see you as a friend and realize that in you they have a champion and a confidant. Someone who is aware of their circumstances and supports them in their hopes and aspirations. Recently, I received an assignment to minister to a sister neither my companion nor I knew well. As I counseled with Jess, my 16-year-old ministering companion, she wisely suggested, we need to get to know her. Well, we immediately decided that a selfie and an introductory text were in order. I held the phone and Jess pushed the button to take the photo. Our first ministering opportunity was a companionship effort. On our first visit, we asked our sister if there was anything we could include in our prayers on her behalf. She shared a tender personal challenge and said she would welcome, so welcome, our prayers. Her honesty and confidence brought an instant bond of love. What a sweet privilege to remember her in my daily prayers. As you pray, you will feel the love of Jesus Christ for those to whom you minister. Share that love with them. What better way is there to feed his sheep than to help them feel his love through you? A second way to develop the heart of a shepherd is to watch over his sheep. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we can move, fix, repair, rebuild just about anything. We're quick to meet a need with a helping hand or a plate of cookies. But is there more? Do our sheep know we are watching over them with love and will take action to help? In Matthew we read, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was a hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? Brothers and sisters, the key word is saw. The righteous saw those in need because they were watching and noticing. We too can be a watchful eye to aid and comfort, to celebrate and even dream. As we act, we can be assured of the promise in Matthew, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, ye have done it unto me. A friend, we'll call him John, shared what can happen when we see another's less visible need. Quote, a sister in my ward attempted suicide. After two months, I discovered that no one in my quorum had approached her husband to address this traumatic experience. Sadly, I had not acted either. Finally, I asked the husband to lunch. He was a shy man, often reserved. And yet when I said, your wife attempted suicide, that must be overwhelming for you. Do you want to talk about it? He openly wept. We had a tender, intimate conversation and developed a remarkable closeness and trust within minutes. John added, I think our tendency is just to bring brownies rather than figure out how to walk into the moment with honesty and love. 
Our sheep may be hurting, lost, or even willfully astray. As their shepherd, we can be among the first to see their need. We can listen and love without judgment and offer hope and help with the discerning guidance of the Holy Ghost. Sisters and brothers, the world is more hope-filled and joyful because of the inspired acts of kindness you perform. As you seek the Lord's direction on how to convey His love and see the needs of those to whom you minister, your eyes will be opened. Your sacred ministering assignment gives you a divine right to inspiration. You can seek that inspiration with confidence. Third, we want our sheep to be gathered into the fold of God. To do so, we must consider where they are on the covenant path and be willing to walk with them on their journey of faith. Ours is a sacred privilege to come to know their hearts and point them to their Savior. Sister Josephine in Fiji had difficulty seeing her way forward on the covenant path, literally. Her friends saw that Josephine struggled to see the scriptures well enough to read. She provided Josephine with new reading glasses and a bright yellow pencil to highlight every mention of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon. What started as a simple desire to minister and to help with scripture study has resulted in Josephine attending the temple for the first time 28 years after she was baptized. Whether our sheep are strong or weak, rejoicing or in anguish, we can make certain that no one walks alone. We can love them wherever they are spiritually and offer support and encouragement for the next step forward. As we pray and seek to understand their hearts, I testify that Heavenly Father will direct us and His Spirit will go with us. We have the opportunity to be the angels around about them as He goes before their face. The Lord invites us to feed His sheep, to tend His flocks as He would. He invites us to be shepherds. Every nation, every country, and yes, Elder Uchtdorf, we love and need German shepherds. And he desires his young people to join in the cause. Our youth can be some of the strongest shepherds. They are, as President Russell M. Nelson said, among the best the Lord has ever sent to this world. They are noble spirits, our finest players who follow the Savior. Can you imagine the power such shepherds will bring as they care for his sheep? Ministering side by side with these youth, we see wonders. Young women and young men, we need you. If you don't have a ministering assignment, talk with your Relief Society and Elders Quorum President. They will rejoice in your willingness to make certain his sheep are known and numbered, watched over and gathered into the fold of God. When the day comes that we will kneel at the feet of our beloved Savior, having nourished his flock, 
I pray we can answer as did Peter. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. These thy sheep are loved. They are safe. And they are home. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We all remember last April when President Russell M. Nelson introduced this concept of ministering. He stressed that it was a way to keep the great commandments, to love God and love each other. We, as officers of the church, openly applaud and congratulate you on the tremendous response you have made and have begun in that regard. We thank you for following our beloved prophet in this wonderful endeavor and suggest that you don't wait for many more instructions. Just jump into the pool and swim. Head toward those in need. Don't be immobilized wondering whether you should do the backstroke or the dog paddle. If we follow the basic principles that have been taught, stay aligned with priesthood keys, and seek the Holy Spirit to guide us, we cannot fail. Thank you, Sister Corden, for that great message. This morning, I wish to speak of an even more personal aspect of ministering that isn't by assignment, that does not involve a calendared interview, and has no reporting line except to heaven. Let me share just one homespun example of that kind of ministry. Grant Morell Bowen was a hard-working, devoted husband and father who, like many, made their living on the land and had an economic downturn when the local potato crop was poor. He and his wife, Norma, took other employment, eventually moved to another city, and started their climb back to economic stability. However, in a terribly unfortunate incident, Brother Bowen was deeply hurt when in a Temple Recommend interview, the bishop was a little skeptical regarding Morell's declaration that he was a full tithe payer. I do not know which of these men had the more accurate facts that day, but I do know Sister Bowen walked out of that interview with her Temple Recommend renewed while Brother Bowen walked out with an anger that would take him away from the church for 15 years. Regardless of who was right about the tithing, evidently both Morell and the bishop forgot the Savior's injunction to agree with thine adversary quickly and Paul's counsel to let not the sun go down upon your wrath. The fact is, they didn't agree, and the sun did go down on Brother Bowen's wrath for days, and then for weeks, and then for years, proving the point made by one of the wisest of the old Romans, who said, anger, if not restrained, is frequently more destructive than the injury that provoked it. But the miracle of reconciliation is always available to us, and out of love for his family, 
and the church he knew to be true, Morel Bowen came back into full church activity. Let me tell you briefly how that happened. Brother Bowen's son, Brad, is a good friend of ours and a devoted Area 70 serving in southern Idaho. Brad was 11 years old at the time of this incident. And for 15 years, he watched his father's religious devotion decline, a witness to the terrible harvest being reaped where anger and misunderstanding had been sown. Something needed to be done. So, as the Thanksgiving holiday approached in 1977, Brad, a 26-year-old student at Brigham Young University, his wife, Valerie, and new baby son, Mick, loaded into their student version of an automobile and bad weather notwithstanding, drove to Billings, Montana. Not even a crash into a snowbank near West Yellowstone could keep this threesome from making their ministering contact with Brother Bowen Sr. Upon arrival, Brad and his sister Pam asked for a private moment with their father. You've been a wonderful dad, Brad began with some emotion, and we've always known how much you loved us. But something is wrong, and it has been for a long time. Because you were hurt once, this whole family has been hurting for years. We're broken, and you're the only one who can fix us. Please, please, after all this time, can you find it in your heart to lay aside that unfortunate incident with that bishop and again lead this family in the gospel as you once did. There was dead silence. And then Brother Bowen looked up at these two, his children, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and said very quietly, Yes. Yes, I will. Thrilled but stunned by the unexpected answer, Brad Bowen and his family watched their husband and father go to his current bishop in a spirit of reconciliation to set things right in his life. In a perfect response to this courageous but totally unexpected visit, the bishop, who had extended repeated invitations to Brother Bowen to come back, threw his arms around Morel and just held him. Held him in a long, long, long embrace. In a matter of only a few weeks, doesn't take long, Brother Bowen was fully engaged in church activity and had made himself worthy to return to the temple. Soon enough, he accepted the call to preside over a struggling little branch of 25 and grew it into a thriving congregation of well over 100. All of this took place nearly half a century ago, but the consequence 
of a son and a daughter's ministering plea to their own father and that father's willingness to forgive and move forward in spite of the imperfections of others has brought blessings that are still coming and will come forever to the Bowen family. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has asked that we live together in love with no disputations among you. He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, he warned the Nephites. Indeed, to a great degree, our relationship to Christ will be determined or at least affected by our relationship to each other. If you desire to come unto me, he said, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, go thy way unto thy brother and first be reconciled to him and then come unto me with full purpose of heart and I will receive you. Surely each of us could cite an endless array of old scars and sorrows and painful memories that this very moment still corrode the peace in someone's heart or family or neighborhood. Whether we've caused that pain or been the recipient of the pain, those wounds need to be healed so that life can be as rewarding as God intended it to be. Like the food in your refrigerator that your grandchildren carefully check in your behalf. Those old grievances have long since exceeded their expiration date. Please don't give precious space in your soul to them any longer. As Prospero said to the regretful Alonso in The Tempest, let us not burden our remembrance with a heaviness that is gone. Forgive and you shall be forgiven, Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And in our day, I the Lord will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. It is, however, important for some of you living in real anguish to know what he did not say. He did not say, you're not allowed to feel true pain or real sorrow from the shattering experiences you've had at the hand of another. Nor did he say, in order to forgive fully, you have to re-enter a toxic relationship or return to an abusive, destructive circumstance. But notwithstanding, even the most terrible offenses that might come to us, we can rise above our pain only when we put our feet onto the path of true healing. That path is the forgiving one walked by Jesus of Nazareth who calls out to each of us, come, follow me. In such an invitation to be his disciple and to try to do as he did, Jesus is asking us 
to be instruments of his grace, to be, and I quote, ambassadors for Christ in the ministry of reconciliation. That's how Paul described it to the Corinthians. The healer of every wound, he who rights every wrong, asks us to labor with him in the daunting task of peacemaking in a world that will not find it any other way. So as Phillips Brooks wrote, you who are letting miserable little misunderstandings run on from year to year to year, meaning to clear them up someday, you who are keeping wretched quarrels alive because you cannot quite make up your mind that now is the day to sacrifice your pride and settle them. You who are passing men sullenly upon the street, not speaking to them out of some silly spite. You who are letting someone's heart ache for a word of appreciation or sympathy, which you mean to give someday. You go instantly and do the thing which you might never have another chance to do. My beloved brothers and sisters, I testify that forgiving and forsaking offenses, old or new, is central to the grandeur of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I testify that ultimately such spiritual repair can only come from our divine Redeemer, he who rushes to our aid with healing in his wings. We thank him and our Heavenly Father who sent him that renewal and rebirth, a future free from old sorrows and past mistakes, are not only possible, but they've already been purchased, paid for, at an excruciating cost, symbolized by the blood of the Lamb who shed it. With the apostolic authority granted me by the Savior of the world, I testify of the tranquility to the soul that reconciliation with God and each other will bring if we're meek and courageous enough to pursue it. Cease to contend one with another, the Savior pled. So if you know of an old injury, repair it. Care for one another in love. My beloved friends, in our shared ministry of reconciliation, I ask us to be peacemakers, to love peace, to seek peace, to cherish peace, to create peace. I make that appeal in the name of the Prince of Peace, who knows everything 
about being wounded in the house of his friends, but who still found the strength to forgive and forget and to heal and be happy. For that I pray for you and for me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The congregation will now join the choir in singing, We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. After the singing, we will hear from Elder Shane M. Bowen of the 70. He will be followed by Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This is the 188th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
brothers and sisters, my uncle Morel comes from a family of 11 children. And he was always one of my favorites and always set a wonderful example for me. And uh, I love him very much and look forward to the day when I'll see him again. Many people today wonder about the reality of God and our relationship to him. Many know little or nothing at all about his great plan of happiness. More than 30 years ago, President Ezra Taft Benson observed that much of the world today rejects the divinity of the Savior. They question his miraculous birth, his perfect life, and the reality of his glorious resurrection. In our day, questions are focused not only on our Savior, but also on His Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which He restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith. These questions often focus on the history, teachings, or practices of the Savior's Church. From Preach My Gospel we read, Remember that our understanding of Heavenly Father and His plan of happiness comes from modern prophets, Joseph Smith and his successors who received direct revelation from God. Therefore, the first question someone should answer is whether Joseph Smith was a prophet, and if he or she can answer this question by reading and praying about the Book of Mormon. The testimony of the divine calling of the prophet Joseph Smith has been strengthened, been strengthened by prayerfully studying the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. I have acted on Moroni's invitation to ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ to know of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. I bear witness that I know it is true. That knowledge has come to me as it can come to you by the power of the Holy Ghost. The introduction to the Book of Mormon states, Those who gain this divine witness of the Book of Mormon from the Holy Spirit will also come to know by the same power that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again established on the earth, preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. As a young missionary going to Chile, I learned a life-changing lesson about the conversion power of the Book of Mormon. Mr. Gonzalez served in a respected position in his church for many years. He had extensive religious training, including a degree in theology. He was quite proud of his biblical expertise. It was obvious to us that he was a religious scholar. He was well aware of the missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as they went about their work in his home city of Lima, Peru. He always wanted to meet with them so that he could school them in the Bible. One day, almost as a gift from heaven, so he thought, two missionaries stopped him in the street and asked if they could come to his home and share the scriptures with him. This was his dream come true. His prayers had been answered. Finally, he could set these misguided young boys straight. He told them that he would be delighted to have them come to his house and discuss the scriptures. He could hardly wait for his appointment. He was ready to use the Bible to disprove their beliefs. He was confident that the Bible would clearly and articulately point out the error of their ways. The appointed night came, and the missionaries knocked on the door. He was giddy. The moment had finally arrived. He opened the door and invited the missionaries into his home. 
One of the missionaries handed him a blue book and bore a sincere testimony that he knew the book contained the word of God. The second missionary added his powerful testimony of the book, testifying that it had been translated by a modern prophet of God named Joseph Smith and that it taught of Christ. The missionaries excused themselves and left his home. Mr. Gonzalez was so disappointed. (laughs) But he opened the book and he started to leaf through its pages. He read the first page. He read page after page after page and didn't stop until late into the afternoon of the next day. He read the whole book and knew that it was true. He knew what he had to do. He called the missionaries, received the lessons, and gave up the life that he had known to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That good man was my MTC teacher in Provo, Utah. Brother Gonzalez's conversion story and the power of the Book of Mormon made a great impression on me. When I arrived in Chile, my mission president, President Royden J. Glade, invited us to read the testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith recorded in Joseph Smith history every week. He taught us that a testimony of the first vision would have a direct correlation to our own testimony of the gospel and our testimony of the Book of Mormon. I took his invitation seriously. I have read the accounts of the first vision. I have read the Book of Mormon. I have prayed as directed by Moroni and asked God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if the Book of Mormon is true. I bear witness today that I know the Book of Mormon, as the Prophet Joseph Smith said, is the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. The Prophet Joseph also declared, Take away the Book of Mormon and the Revelations, and where is our religion? We have none. As we better understand who we are and the purposes of the Book of Mormon, our conversion deepens and becomes more certain. We are strengthened in our commitment to keep the covenants we have made with God. A principal purpose of the Book of Mormon is to gather scattered Israel. This gathering gives all of God's children the opportunity to enter into the covenant path and by honoring those covenants, return back to the presence of the Father. As we teach repentance and baptize converts, we gather scattered Israel. The Book of Mormon has 108 references to the House of Israel. At the beginning of the Book of Mormon, Nephite taught... For the, purpose, for the fullness of my intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament. We are saved as we come unto Christ through living his gospel. Later, Nephite wrote... Yea, even my father spake much concerning the Gentiles and also concerning the house of Israel, that they should be compared like unto an olive tree whose branches should be broken off and should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. And after the house of Israel should be scattered, they should be gathered together again, or in fine, after the Gentiles had received the fullness of the gospel, the natural branches of the olive tree or the remnants of the house of Israel should be grafted in or come to the knowledge of the true Messiah, their Lord and their Redeemer. Likewise, at the end of the Book of Mormon, the prophet Moroni reminds us of our covenants, saying, 
that thou mayest no more be confounded, that the covenants of the eternal Father, which he hath made unto thee, O house of Israel, may be fulfilled. What are the covenants of the eternal Father referred to by Moroni? We read in the book of Abraham. My name is Jehovah, and I know the end from the beginning. Therefore, my hand shall be over thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. President Russell M. Nelson taught in a recent worldwide broadcast that, quote, These surely are the latter days, and the Lord is hastening his work to gather Israel. That gathering is the most important thing taking place on earth today. Nothing else compares in magnitude. Nothing else compares in importance. Nothing else compares in majesty. And if you choose to, if you want to, you can be a big part of it. You can be a big part of something big, something grand, something majestic. When we speak of the gathering... We are simply saying this fundamental truth. Every one of our Heavenly Father's children on both sides of the veil deserves to hear the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. They decide for themselves if they want to know more. End quote. That is what we are doing as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are seeking to bring the world to an understanding and a conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the Latter-day Gatherers. Our mission is clear. Brothers and sisters, let us be known as those who have taken Moroni's promise to heart, prayed and received an answer to know that the Book of Mormon is true, and then shared that knowledge with others in word and, most importantly, in deed. The Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It leads us to the covenants of the Father, which, if kept, will assure us of his greatest gift, eternal life. The Book of Mormon is the keystone to conversion of all of Heavenly Father's sons and daughters. Quoting again from President Nelson, As you read daily the Book of Mormon, you will learn the doctrine of the gathering, truths about Jesus Christ, his atonement, and the fullness of his gospel not found in the Bible. The Book of Mormon is central to the gathering of Israel. In fact, If there were no Book of Mormon, the promised gathering of Israel would not occur. Let me conclude with the words of the Savior as he taught the Nephites of the promised blessings. Ye are the children of the prophets, and ye are the house of Israel. And ye are of the covenant which the Father made with your fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. I testify that we are sons and daughters of God, the seed of Abraham, the house of Israel. We are gathering Israel for the last time and are doing so with the Book of Mormon, a book that combined with the Spirit of the Lord is the most powerful tool of conversion. We are led by the prophet of God, President Russell M. Nelson, who is directing the gathering of Israel in our day. The Book of Mormon is true. It has changed my life. I promise you, as have Moroni and many prophets through the ages, that it can change yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. On March 22, 2016, just before 8 o'clock in the morning, 
Two terrorist bombs exploded in the Brussels airport. Elder Richard Norby, Elder Mason Wells, and Elder Joseph Empey had taken Sister Fanny Klan to the airport for a flight for her mission in Cleveland, Ohio. Thirty-two people lost their lives, and all of the missionaries were wounded. The most seriously wounded was Elder Richard Norby, age 66, serving with his wife, Sister Pam Norby. Elder Norby reflected on that moment. Instantly, I knew what had happened. I tried to run for safety, but I immediately fell down. I could see that my left leg was badly injured. I noticed black, almost spiderweb-type soot drooping from both hands. I gently pulled at it, but realized it was not soot, but my skin that had been burned. My white shirt was turning red from an injury on my back. As the consciousness of what had just happened filled my mind, I had this very strong thought. The Savior knew where I was, what had just transpired, and what I was experiencing at that moment. There were difficult days ahead for Richard Norby and for his wife Pam. He was placed in an induced coma, followed with surgeries, infections, and great uncertainty. Richard Norby lived, but his life would never be the same. Two and a half years later, his wounds are still healing. A brace replaces the missing part of his leg. Each step is different than before that moment at the Brussels airport. Why would this happen to Richard and Pam Norby? They had been true to their covenants, served a previous mission in the Ivory Coast, and raised a wonderful family. Someone could understandably say, it isn't fair, it just isn't right. They were giving their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could this happen? Although the details will differ, the tragedies, the unanticipated tests and trials, both physical and spiritual, come to each of us because this is mortality. As I thought of the speakers in just this session of conference, it occurred to me that two have had children and three have had grandchildren unexpectedly return to their heavenly home. None has been spared sickness and sadness and has been spoken in this very week an angel on earth whom we all love, Sister Barbara Ballard, stepped gently through the veil. President Ballard will never forget your testimony this morning. We search for happiness, we long for peace, we hope for love, and the Lord showers us with an amazing abundance of blessings. But intermingled with the joy and happiness, one thing is certain. There will be moments, hours, days, sometimes years, when your soul will be wounded. The scriptures teach that we will taste the bitter and the sweet, and that there will be opposition in all things. Jesus said, Your Father maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Wounds of the soul are not unique to the rich or the poor.
to one culture, one nation, or one generation. They come to all and are part of the learning we receive from this mortal experience. My message today is especially to those who are keeping the commandments of God, keeping their promises to God, and like the Norbies and many other men, women, and children in this worldwide audience are confronted with trials and challenges that are unexpected and painful. Our wounds may come from a natural disaster or an unfortunate accident. They may come from an unfaithful husband or wife turning life upside down for a righteous spouse and children. The wounds may come from the darkness and gloom of depression, from an unanticipated illness, from the suffering or premature death of someone we love, the sadness from a family member dismissing his or her faith, the loneliness when circumstances do not bring an eternal companion, or a hundred other heart-wrenching, painful sorrows that the eye can't see. We each understand that difficulties are part of life, but when they come to us personally, they can take our breath away. Without being alarmed, we need to be ready. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter said, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Along with the bright colors of happiness and joy, the darker colored threads of trial and tragedy are woven deeply into the fabric of our Father's plan. These struggles, although difficult, often become our greatest teachers. When telling the miraculous story of Helaman's 2,060 young soldiers, we love this scripture. According to the goodness of God, to our great astonishment, and also the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. But the sentence continues, and neither was there one soul among them who had not received many wounds. Each of the 2,060 received many wounds, and each one of us will be wounded in the battle of life, whether physically, spiritually, or both. Never give up. However deep the wounds of your soul, whatever their source, wherever or whenever they happen, and for how short or long they persist, you are not meant to perish spiritually. You are meant to survive spiritually and blossom in your faith and trust in God. God did not create our spirits to be independent of Him. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through the incalculable gift of His atonement, not only saves us from death and offers us through repentance forgiveness for our sins, but He also stands ready to save us from the sorrows and pains of our wounded souls. The Savior is our Good Samaritan, sent to heal the brokenhearted. He comes to us when others pass us by. With compassion, 
He places his healing balm on our wounds and binds them up. He carries us. He cares for us. He bids us, come unto me and I shall heal you. And Jesus shall suffer pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he might take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, taking upon himself our infirmities, being filled with mercy. Come, ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish, come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here, bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. At a time of enormous suffering, the Lord told the prophet Joseph, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. How can painful wounds be for our good? In the crucible of earthly trials, patiently move forward, and the Savior's healing power will bring you light, understanding, peace, and hope. Pray with all your heart. Strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ, in his reality, in his grace. Hold on to these words. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Remember, repentance is powerful spiritual medicine. Keep the commandments and be worthy of the Comforter, remembering the Savior promised, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The peace of the temple is a soothing balm to the wounded soul. Return to the Lord's house with your wounded heart and with your family names as frequently as possible. The temple projects our brief moment in mortality onto the wide screen of eternity. Look backward, remembering that you proved your worthiness in your premortal state. You are a valiant child of God, and with his help, you can triumph in the battles of this fallen world. You have done it before, and you can do it again. Look forward. Your troubles and sorrows are very real, but they will not last forever. Your dark night will pass because the sun did rise with healing in his wings. The Norbies told me disappointment comes to visit on occasion, but is never allowed to stay. The Apostle Paul said, We are troubled, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. You may be exhausted, but don't ever give up. Even with your own painful wounds, you will instinctively reach out to others, trusting in the Savior's promise, whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. The wounded who nurse the wounds of others are God's angels on earth. In just a few moments, we will listen to our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, 
a man of undaunted faith in Jesus Christ, a man of hope and peace, loved by God, but not spared from the wounds of the soul. In 1995, his daughter Emily, while expecting a child, was diagnosed with cancer. There were days of hope and happiness as her healthy baby was delivered. But the cancer returned, and their beloved Emily would pass from this life just two weeks after her 37th birthday, leaving her loving husband and five young children. In general conference, shortly after her passing, Elder Nelson confided, My tears of sorrow have flowed along with wishes that I could have done more for our daughter. If I had the power of resurrection, I would have been tempted to bring her back. But Jesus Christ holds those keys and will use them for Emily and for all people in the Lord's own time. Last month, while visiting the saints in Puerto Rico and remembering last year's devastating hurricane, President Nelson spoke with love and compassion. This is part of life. It's why we're here. We are here to have a body and to be tried and tested. Some of those tests are physical. Some are spiritual. And your trials here have been both physical and spiritual. You have not given up. We are so proud of you. You faithful saints have lost much. But through it all, you have fostered your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By keeping God's commandments, we can find joy even in the midst of our worst circumstances. My brothers and sisters, it is my promise to you that increasing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will bring you added strength and greater hope. For you, the righteous, the healer of our souls in his time and his way, will heal all your wounds. No injustice, no persecution, no trial, no sadness, no heartache, no suffering, no wound. However deep, however wide, however painful, will be excluded from the comfort, peace, and lasting hope of him whose open arms and whose wounded hands will welcome us back into his presence. At that day, the Apostle John testifies, the righteous which come out of great tribulation will stand arrayed in white robes before the throne of God. The Lamb will dwell among us, and God shall wipe away all tears from your eyes. This day will come, I so witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. We are grateful to those who have spoken to us thus far and to the Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they have provided this morning. The choir will now favor us with his voice as the sound. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from our beloved prophet,
President Russell M. Nelson. Following President Nelson's remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, It is well with my soul. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Donald L. Hallstrom of the 70.
Kentucky Choir, my beloved brothers and sisters, on this beautiful Sabbath day, we rejoice together in our many blessings from the Lord. We are very grateful for your testimonies of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, for the sacrifices you've made to stay on or return to his covenant path. And for your consecrated service in his church. Today, I feel compelled to discuss with you a matter of great importance. Some weeks ago, I released a statement regarding a course correction for the name of the church. I did this because the Lord impressed upon my mind the importance of the name he decreed for his church even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As you would expect, responses to this statement and to the Revised Style Guide have been mixed. Many members immediately corrected the name of the Church on their blogs and social media pages. Others wondered why, with all that's going on in the world, it was necessary to emphasize something so inconsequential. And some said it couldn't be done, so why even try? Let me explain why we care so deeply about this issue. But first, let me state what this effort is not. It is not a name change. It is not rebranding. It is not cosmetic, it is not a whim, and it is not inconsequential. Instead, it is a correction. It is the command of the Lord. Joseph Smith did not name the church restored through him, neither did Mormon. It was the Savior himself who said, For thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even earlier, in A.D. 34, our resurrected Lord gave similar instruction to members of his church when he visited them in the Americas. At that time, he said, Ye shall call the church in my name. And how be it, my church, save it be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. Thus, the name of the church is not negotiable. When the Savior clearly states what the name of his church should be, and even precedes his declaration with, Thus shall my church be called, he's serious. And if we allow nicknames to be used or adopt or even sponsor those nicknames ourselves, he is offended. What's in the name? 
or in this case, a nickname? When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, or the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the most glaring omission is the absence of the Savior's name. To remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. When we discard the Savior's name, we are subtly disregarding all that Jesus Christ did for us, even his atonement. Consider this from his perspective. Premortally, he was Jehovah, God of the Old Testament. Under the direction of his Father, he was the creator of this and other worlds. He chose to submit to the will of his Father and do something for all of God's children that no one else could do. Condescending to come to earth as the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, he was brutally reviled, mocked, spit upon, and scourged. In the Garden of Gethsemane, our Savior took upon himself every pain, every sin, and all of the anguish and suffering ever experienced by you and me and by everyone that has ever or will ever live. Under the weight of that excruciating burden, he bled from every pore. All of this suffering was intensified as he was cruelly crucified on Calvary's cross. Through these excruciating experiences and his subsequent resurrection, his infinite atonement, he granted immortality to all and ransomed each one of us from the effects of sin on condition of our repentance. Following the Savior's resurrection and the death of his apostles, the world plunged into centuries of darkness. Then in the year 1820, God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith to initiate the restoration of the Lord's Church. After all he had endured and after all he had done for humankind, I realize with profound regret that we have unwittingly acquiesced in the Lord's restored church being called by other names, each of which expunges the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday as we partake worthily of the sacrament, we make anew our sacred promise to our Heavenly Father that we are willing to take upon us the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. We promise to follow him, repent, keep his commandments, and always remember him. When we omit his name from his church, we are inadvertently removing him as the central focus of our lives. Taking the Savior's name upon us includes declaring and witnessing to others through our actions and our words 
that Jesus is the Christ. Have we been so afraid to offend someone who called us Mormons that we have failed to defend the Savior himself, to stand up for him even in the name by which his church is called? If we as a people and as individuals are to have access to the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, to cleanse and heal us, to strengthen and magnify us, and ultimately to exalt us, we must clearly acknowledge him as the source of that power. We can begin by calling his church by the name he decreed. For much of the world, the Lord's church is presently disguised as the Mormon church. But we as members of the Lord's church know who stands at its head, Jesus Christ himself. Unfortunately, many who hear the term Mormon think that we worship Mormon. Not so. We honor and respect that great ancient American prophet. But we are not Mormon's disciples. We are the Lord's disciples. In the early days of the restored church, terms such as Mormon church and Mormons were often used as epithets, as cruel terms, abusive terms designed to obliterate God's hand in restoring the Church of Jesus Christ in these latter days. Brothers and sisters, there are many worldly arguments against restoring the correct name of the Church because of the digital world in which we live and with search engine optimization that helps all of us find information we need almost instantly including information about the Lord's Church. Critics say that a correction at this point is unwise. Others feel that because we're known so widely as Mormons and as the Mormon Church, we should make the best of it. If this were a discussion about branding a man-made organization, those arguments might prevail. But in this crucial matter, we look to him whose church this is and acknowledge that the Lord's ways are not and never will be man's ways. If we will be patient and if we will do our part well, the Lord will lead us through this important task. After all, we know that the Lord helps those who seek to do his will just as he helped Nephi accomplish the task of building a ship to cross the sea. We will want to be courteous and patient in our efforts to correct these errors. Responsible media will be sympathetic in responding to our request. In a previous general conference, Elder Benjamin de Hoyos spoke of such an event. Benjamin said, Some years ago, while serving in the Office of Public Affairs of the Church in Mexico, a companion and I were invited to participate in a radio talk show. 
One of the program directors asked us, why does the church have such a long name? My companion and I smiled at such a magnificent question and then proceeded to explain that the name of the church was not chosen by man. It was given by the Savior. The program director immediately and respectfully responded, we will thus repeat it with great pleasure. Close quote. Well, that report uh, provides a pattern. One by one, our best efforts as individuals will be required to correct errors that have crept in through the years. The rest of the world may or may not follow our lead in calling us by the correct name, but it is disingenuous for us to be frustrated if most of the world calls the church and its members by the wrong names if we do the same. Our revised style guide is helpful. It states, in the first reference, the full name of the church is preferred, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When a shortened second reference is needed, the terms the church or the Church of Jesus Christ are encouraged. The restored Church of Jesus Christ is also accurate and encouraged. Now, someone should ask, are you a Mormon? You could reply, if you're asking if I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> if someone asks, are you a Latter-day Saint? You might respond, yes, I am. I believe in Jesus Christ and am a member of his restored church. My dear brothers and sisters, I promise that if we will do our best to restore the correct name of the Lord's Church, he whose church this is will pour down his power and blessings upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints, the likes of which we have never seen. We will have the knowledge and power of God to help us take the blessings of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and to prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord. So, what's in a name? When it comes to the name of the Lord's Church, the answer is everything. Jesus Christ directed us to call the church by his name because it is his church filled with his power. I know that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. He leads his church today. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Father in heaven, we have gathered this Sabbath morning as members and friends of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are indeed, thank thee, thank God for a prophet who guides us in these latter days. We are grateful for this season of abundant revelation. We understand with great blessing comes great responsibility, and we pray that each of us individually and within our families may have the capacity to rise and stand tall and to seek to understand not simply what we should do, but why we should do it, to understand that the principles and doctrine that have been taught in this conference session this day and throughout this weekend are of thee and of thy son and uh, as each of us follow it we may be blessed and come unto thy son and through him gain eternal life we thank thee for all who bear the apostolic authority and for the privilege and blessing it is within this church to have the priesthood of thy son and of thee we now dismiss ourselves for a time so that we might contemplate and understand and do those things that we have understood this day. We love thee, Father. We love thy Son, and we pray in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.